All right, Jonah chapter 2. How many of you are familiar with the Ron Hamilton song about Jonah? I don't think it's a bad song. I think if we have that in our mind, when we read here through this second chapter of Jonah, we're going to miss the point. Because we're just going to jump to verse 10 about the fish. And verse two, or chapter 2, verse 1 about the fish. And the main focus here in chapter 2 is Jonah's prayer to God. Is look at this section in connection with a number of other passages, uh, for example, from the Psalms. So, what I'm going to have you do is instead of reading through the verses here in Jonah, I'm going to have different ones of you read through some of those excerpts from the Psalms, and then we're going to look at the verse in Jonah and see how it compares. So, obviously, verse 1 Jonah prayed from the stomach of the fish, and he said, and so uh, someone read for us Psalm 18, 4. Six, please. Psalm eighteen, four through six, and then Psalm twenty-two, verse twenty-four. Okay, Bob. Psalm eighteen, and then Psalm twenty-two, verse twenty-four. Who would read that for us? Jonathan, thank you. All right, go ahead, Bob. The cords of death encompassed me, and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord, and I cried to my God for help. He heeded, he heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help before him came into his ears. Okay. Jonathan? Which verses? Uh, Psalm twenty-two, twenty-four, please. Yes, please. For he has not Okay, and then Psalm 88, 1 through 7. Someone read that for us. Psalm 88, 1 to 7. Evan, thank you. Oh, sorry. I didn't see you. Yes, please. So any thoughts on those psalms relative to verse 2? Uh, sorry, Jonah 2, verse 2. Braden? Uh, 
Okay? So calling, God answering, where are they calling from? The depths of Sheol, and even from there, God heard their voice. Um, Psalm 88, toward the end of it, acknowledged what about God in his response to the psalmist, that God's what was, in, was active. Put his wrath upon him. Okay. Mm, and I, I want us to keep developing this idea, but I think we might as well start with it here. If the psalmist in Psalm 88 can speak of God's wrath being upon him and feeling as though he's in the depths of Sheol, if the psalmist in Psalm 139 says, wherever I go, God, you're still there, you hear me, you see me, you know all of what's going on, and if Jonah says here, I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, and I called out of my distress to the Lord. Where is Jonah relative to David, who wrote a lot, though not all of the Psalms? Time-wise. Time before or after? Read? Okay. So Jonah is after. So we're all the way down to Uzziah, which is... I want to say 12 kings after David might be more like 15. Uh, so, have the Psalms of David been recorded by this point? Have at least some of them been compiled and distributed? So, if Jonah is alluding to similar themes, I mean, it's possible that he arrived at them independently of the Psalms, but it's probably more likely, based on what we see Paul and others doing in the New Testament, that they are, um, he's reflecting an awareness of what's already been said. Here's the point I'm trying to make. We tend to think of Jonah as the disobedient prophet. And there's a sense in which he was, right? God said, go, and he went the opposite way. God said, go up to Nineveh, and he went down to the docks, right? But in chapter 2, we have a parallel between the way that he is talking to God and the way that other, mm, I don't know if we would say godly, but at least people who have clearly have a relationship with God, because David wasn't godly throughout his whole life, right? But he was still a man who walked with God. Talking to God in similar ways, expressing similar concepts, seemingly expressing similar faith. What are the two possibilities then about how we should think about Jonah and the words that he's saying? If I'm saying things that are talking to God, like other people who have a relationship with God, what are the two possibilities? Braden? Okay, that he's just copying them and saying empty words, or that he genuinely means what he's saying, at least in this moment. Jonah 2, um, and maybe, this is, maybe, I'm just, maybe I'm pounding the obvious end, but Jonah 2 seems to be set in stark contrast to 1, 3, and 4. Right? Because Jonah 1, God says go, and he goes the opposite way. Jonah 3, God says go again, and what does he do? He does it, but, and maybe we've been, again, reading too much into it in light of chapter 1, and chapter 4, but um, I think when we read Jonah 3, we tend to think that it's like this. 
Go clean your room. Picking things up. Right? Do you guys tend to read chapter 3 that way? But in chapter 2, there seems to be a genuine response of faith in God, calling for God's help, recognizing potentially God's wrath, and the fact that this was something he had brought upon himself, but being grateful for God's delivering him anyway, I think it puts a little bit different perspective on Jonah's life. All right, let's keep going and see if there's any other comparisons to other places, particularly in the Psalms. Uh, someone read for us, if you would, mm, Psalm 69, 1 and 2. Who wants to do that? And then, anybody willing to do that? Okay, Sarah, and then I need Psalm 42, verse 7. Sandra? Okay, go ahead, Sarah. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. Okay. Sandra? Psalm 42, 7. Okay. Is there at least a similarity of concept? Now, in Jonah's case, what's the difference? Versus Psalm 69 and Psalm 42. He's literally under the water, right? Whereas I think Psalm 69 and Psalm 42 are using those in a figurative sense, right? But there's using like a very parallel kind of expression. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. So, uh, just a moment here. So here's an interesting question. Psalm 42 is not noted as a psalm of David but it's a song of the sons of Korah. So then that raises an interesting question. Were they copying Jonah or was Jonah copying them? And it's not really a question we can answer at the moment. It's just one of those things where uh, as you stop and think about the chronology of the Psalms being compiled over an extensive period of time, and the events that they allude to, sometimes being really clear and sometimes being vague, it just raises interesting questions. But, chapter 2, verse 3. Do we see a parallel to the language of the Psalms in other places? You've cast me into the deep. Your breakers and billows have passed over me. Without reading too much from Psalm 42 back into Jonah's prayer, what was the attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 42 and 43? Assume you're probably familiar with it. There's that phrase that's used three times. I will, uh, why are you cast down within me, my soul? Hope in God, I will yet praise him. There's an expression of faith in that psalm, at least, right? It might be too much to read that into what Jonah is saying here, but it is interesting to note the parallel. 
especially when you come to verse 4. Look at verse 4. Someone read that out loud for us. Jonah 2, verse 4. So I said I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Does that sound like Psalm 42 at all? I'm not saying that... 42 and... 40, yeah, 43, right? Um, I'm not saying they're an exact match, but there are at least common themes between the two of them. Why could Jonah say, or on what basis could Jonah potentially say, I've been expelled from your sight, but I will look again toward your holy temple. Well, he it, believes eventually he'll go to heaven. It's yeah. Certainly, he, he feels kind of like he's separated from God to where his present location. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think he's thinking heaven in verse 4 when he's talking about the temple, because the temple and the thought of Jewish uh, followers of God seem to be very much like the actual temple. So what is he potentially saying? On what basis could he, while drowning in the belly of the fish, say, I will look again toward your temple? If what happens? If he's rescued, if God delivers him, if he does what? Jonah himself. Obeys, Braden? Repents, okay? So, again, Jonah 2, where it says, I've been expelled, I will look again. I called out to you and you answered me. He is said in contrast, chapter 2. What's happening in chapter 2? Everybody's about to drown. What are the pagan sailors doing? Yeah, put it, put it in the phrase, calling on their gods, right? What is Jonah not doing? Not calling on God. What is Jonah doing in chapter 2? Calling on God. I'm not trying to make too much of this, but I think it's interesting the contrast. Verse 5, you have the water encompassing to the point of death. Um, some people would see a parallel to Lamentations 3 where it says, waters float over my head, I said I'm cut off. Again, that would be, Lamentations would be using it figuratively. Um, Jonah is using it, I think, quite literally. The deep engulfed me, weeds were wrapped around my head. Now there's a bit of poetic exaggeration when he said, I descended to the roots of the mountains, and the earth with its bars was around me forever. Um, but he's sinking down deep into the waters, right? Expecting, it seems, to drown. Um, anybody familiar with a psalm that says, you've brought me up from the pit? I think it's Psalm 51. There's actually several places. So Psalm 30 says, You brought up my soul from Sheol, that I wouldn't go down in the pit. Psalm 16 says, You won't abandon my soul to Sheol, nor allow your Holy One to suffer decay. That's the anticipation of Christ's ministry. Um, there's also the one that you brought me up out of the horrible pit. That might be... I don't think that's Psalm 51, but it might be. Anyways... There's another psalm that we're familiar with, might be Psalm 40, that says, you brought me up out of the horrible pit of despair, right? The miry pit. All of those to say, this idea of bringing life up from the pit is God rescuing and delivering from death, right? So the contrast is, verse 2, you're in the depth of Sheol. God hears your voice, brings you up from basically certain death. And then we see verse 7, right? When he says, fainting away, do you think he just means... Like, 
a fainting spell like a Victorian lady who was caught off by the sight of something that distressed her. No, what does he mean? I'm about to die, right? I'm out of breath. I'm losing consciousness. And yet he says, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now that part, I think, is a little more vague. Like, did it, was he thinking it went to God in the temple in Jerusalem and then ascended to God? Or was he thinking to God in his temple in some sort of um, God exalted above all? like the way the prophets describe in the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah. That's, I think, a little bit less clear. But um, I think verse 4 is, I'll look toward your holy temple with my own eyes. Verse uh, 7 is, his prayer ascends to God, whether he's thinking by means of the temple in Jerusalem or directly to God, wherever God is. Bob? What are your thoughts on whether or not he died? Does it have any impact on what he's saying? Like, did he actually drown and God resurrected him? Yeah. Interesting concept. I don't think I've thought a lot about that. It's certainly possible God raised other people from the dead. I think on the one hand, you have the statements throughout the Psalms of, I was in Sheol from people who clearly had not died, as far as we know, like David. So that would be an argument to say, no, no. Tina, do you have a thought? Yes. Oh, good. Uh, I read somewhere that he wasn't died yet. Okay. Maybe that was in death. Yeah, so there's been like scientific analyses of could someone actually survive in the stomach of the fish and all of those sorts of things. I mean, again... Not again. Like, so when we look at something where God says to the fish, hey, go over here, pick up this guy. Not what you would pick for an Uber or a Lyft, right? A fish. But if the fish can be directed by God to go get the guy out of the water, can God, I mean, turn off the fish's stomach acid for three days? It's not like the fish is going to die if it doesn't eat for three days. Um... Can God leave it on a little bit so Jonah's miserable and it aids in his repentance? I mean, there's all sorts of possibilities. I don't think we know, to Bob's point, did Jonah die? And then God resurrected him out of the fish's stomach when he was half eaten. Or did God do something supernatural to preserve him to be able to have oxygen, to be able to not be harmed by whatever's going on in the fish? I think we read stomach and we also assume that it has to be like the part that digests food. And I think that verse 1 is probably more getting at just the idea of like inside the fish. We don't want to make it the whole Disney thing, right? Pinocchio's inside the whale and has his little light and you know that whole thing, right? We're not looking at that either. The bottom line is the text doesn't say, does Jonah die? The text doesn't say, did the fish die? like eat him, like to digest him. The fact that he is able in to do this prayer, but then again, the prayer seems to have been in a moment as he's about to drown, right? The prayer doesn't necessarily seem to be. Um, and, and yet verse 1 says, he prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. 
So that would argue against him being dead, potentially. And it would, at least in that moment, unless we say he drowned, God revived him, then the fish swallowed him, kept him alive there, and then threw him up on the land. The bottom line is there's a lot of miraculous things going on here, or at least unusual things that God is directly intervening in the course of things, because fish don't usually swallow things that they don't eat. Fish don't usually then, like, throw them up on the land. Like, if a fish is going to throw something up, where would the most natural place be for it to do it? In the middle of the water somewhere, right? Which doesn't help Jonah or get him to where he's supposed to go. And then if it's a shark, which I'm not saying it's a shark, sharks don't tend to throw up what they swallowed, right? Because they, they, like, cut open a great white shark. I remember reading a book when I was a kid. They found oars, and they found a barrel, and they found an anchor, and they found, like, all sorts of random stuff that the shark had swallowed. None of it, it kicked back out again, right? So fish don't tend to be like cats. Like cats eat something, they don't like it, and they immediately throw it up, right? Sometimes they throw it up just because, and who knows why. Fish aren't that way. Like I kept fish, and I, if you see a fish vomiting, it's about to die usually, right? Rob, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to make a joke and it might have been a cat. Ah, uh, there we go. Okay, Bob? That would be awful. Go ahead. In regards to Jonah being a type, yes. Just thinking about Jonah doesn't have to die to be a type, though. Okay, so that's what I'm trying to understand. Okay, that. so that's where you're coming from. Yeah. Okay. I think that the people of Israel were very familiar with the story of Jonah because there are just unusual things about it, right? For like Joel. Unless you had just read Joel recently, you probably wouldn't be able to tell me anything about Joel, right? If you'd read a long time ago, oh yeah, the locust guy. Tina? Jonah has been around Right. Yeah. Right. And so um, there's something about this story that catches our attention as opposed to like Joel or Amos or Obadiah, right? And so for whatever reason, this potentially was a more familiar story to the people of Israel. But think about, and we were talking about this, Sarah and I, the other day, God could have intervened in Jonah's life so that he never made it to the ship, so that he never got swallowed by the fish. And if that never happened, then would Jesus be able to allude to it in the Gospels? No. Because people would be like, what, what do you mean, three days, three days in the ship? Like, if Jonah had only made it to the ship, and then made it safely. So there's a sense in which God lets Jonah go down this path of disobedience to create the parallel that Christ is going to reference hundreds of years later. And there's a sense in which he also does it so that it is a memorable thing. And even if we sometimes remember the wrong things about Jonah, because ultimately we sometimes take the book of Jonah as being about the fish. It's not about the fish. The book of Jonah is about our response when God tells us to do something we don't want to do. God's response to us when we don't do the thing that he told us to do. 
God's response to people who repent when we do the things God tells us to do, and our response to people that we hate or don't think God should be kind to after God has been kind to them, and, and what God's character is like in the midst of all those things. So ultimately it's about God, and it's about our responses to God. It's not about the fish. The fish is like an incidental detail, but that's the thing that we tend to remember. So to the point of the parallel that Christ has. I think the parallel can be accomplished. Jonah goes down into the belly for three days and then is spit out. Christ goes down into the earth for three days and is raised up. I think it can hold true whether or not Jonah dies, but I think it's certainly a possibility. There's a similar question of, um, I think it's Acts 16. Paul is not 16, but somewhere in there, Paul is basically stoned to death by the people. And then it says, the, like the people seem to be convinced that he's died, and they walk off. And then it says, and Paul gets up or is raised up. And so the question is, did Paul die and was raised? I kind of think he was, but we don't know for sure, right? The text doesn't say exactly. The same thing is possibly true here. We don't know exactly. Verse 8 is really interesting in light of chapter 1, right? What does verse 8 say, Jonah 2, verse 8? Okay, what are the people of Israel doing? Worshipping idols. What are the people of Nineveh doing? Worshipping idols. What's the difference between the people of Israel and the people of Nineveh? Yeah, on this point, absolutely nothing. God's people are being unfaithful. The Assyrians are being unfaithful because God is the one that they should be worshipping even though they don't necessarily acknowledge or know that. What does verse 9 say? Someone read it for us. Verse 9, Jonah 2, verse 9. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. What does Jonah 1, verse 16 say? Read it for us, Jonathan. And the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Okay. What's the difference between Jonah and the pagan sailors at this point? Braden, you look like you know the answer. Nothing. Jonah is finally doing what he should have done in the first place, but it takes all of these experiences God's taking him through to get to the point of doing what the pagan soldiers did a few, you know, three days before at the end of chapter 1. And then again, it's clear that it's God's hand at work because the Lord commanded the fish and vomited Jonah up on the dry land. We could get into chapter 3. Um, before we get to that, though, there's a couple of uh, things that I think we should talk about. What's the significance of sacrificing with thanksgiving? Or how does that fit into um, so the Old Testament system of sacrifices? What sort of sacrifices were there? I know we went through this in like Exodus and Leviticus, but it's been a little while. There were multiple types. Tina? Absolutely. I, I'm going back to the Old Testament system, though. You have 
offerings. So they're animals. They have, there's categories. They had different names. Anybody remember any of the names? So there's guilt, sin offering. Sin and guilt offering are closely related, but they're not identical. There's a peace offering, right? There's a thanksgiving offering. And sometimes these labels, people use them somewhat interchangeably, so it gets confusing. Um, you had like a wave offering, but that was a subset of one of the other types. Um, so there's all these different kinds of offerings, right? So what we tend to think of is exclusively the sin offering, right? So to Tina's point, Jesus offers himself as an offering in place of sinners, right? So he takes upon himself the guilt, like they put the guilt on the scapegoat and sent it away. He takes upon himself the sin, like they did with the sin offerings. He is, in a sense, consumed by the wrath of God, even as the burnt offering was literally consumed by God's wrath, by fire as a representation of God's wrath. But there's also the peace offering and the thanksgiving offering, and those were offered not because of something that you uh, had done wrong, but they were offered as a sign of the fact that you had a relationship with God. What's the significance of that in light of what the sailors do and what Jonah says in 2 verse 9? I could be wrong, and I need to check what the word sacrifice here is, if it parallels one of the other types, but I, I think the word sacrifice can be used generally. If he says, with the voice of thanksgiving, this seems to be a voluntary offering versus one that was required in response to God's deliverance, as opposed to, to atone for the sin that he had committed of disobeying God. Yeah, and there's overlap between the peace and the thanksgiving offerings, and in fact, they might in some cases be the same thing. And I'd have to go back. I, I should have reviewed that before I, I started going down this path. But my point is just to say, um, think about uh, Ecclesiastes 5, where it talks about vows, and it says it's important to keep the vows that you've vowed to God. What sort of scenario is in view there? What would someone have done? So people had livestock, right? And if you vowed a, a thing that you had to God, what were you supposed to do? Follow through and, Follow through and yeah, give it, give it to God, right? So I think Ecclesiastes 5, the scenario is this. A representative from the temple comes to your house because you've made a promise of whatever it is to God. And they get there and what do you say? Change my mind, I don't want to do this anymore, right? And Ecclesiastes 5 says, if that is the case, is God happy with you about that response? No. Now, this can get twisted, right? There's the whole thing about the story with Jephthah. Some people say, well, he didn't actually sacrifice his daughter, and my thought is, it's the book of Judges. They did a lot more awful things than just sacrifice their kids. So, I think it's entirely possible and or likely that he does. Was that a vow that God wanted him to keep? No, but it's also not one he should have made in the first place because it was foolish and hasty, which Ecclesiastes 5 also talks about. Um, the reason I'm saying all these sorts of things is if it is a voluntary sacrifice in connection with a voluntary vow, in connection with gratitude for God's deliverance that he didn't have to show to Jonah, 
Mm, it sort of moves our concept of the worship and life of Old Testament saints a little bit out of the category of everything being an obligation to there being a willing obedience to God expressed in moments of generosity or, or, or giving of yourself that parallels a lot what we see in the New Testament. So 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. You had Corinthians who said to Paul, what about this offering he's raising for the poor in Jerusalem? They want to do it, they don't want to do it. They wanted to do it. He said, you were really eager about this. I introduced the idea and you said, yeah, let's do this. He says, it's a year later. None of you have sent any money. Maybe not a year, but it's, time has passed, right? <laughs> Typical people, right? We get really excited about something and then we step back and we say, you know what? Yeah, I said I would give God $1,000. That seems really expensive. How about 50 And again, going back to the foolishness, the hastiness, the whatever, we're not necessarily supposed to offer extravagant things that we really shouldn't be offering. Um, but if we come to a point where we become convinced this is what God wants us to do, then we need to follow through on it, right? So 2 Corinthians 8-9, Paul tells the Corinthians, hey, when you... When it comes time for the collection to be made by the representative from God, I don't want to come there and find that you guys don't have anything because you said you were going to do this and you committed to this before God. So that's the parallel with Ecclesiastes 5. The parallel with worship of Old Testament saints is this. We sometimes, I think, look down on what people have called foxhole conversions or, God, if you get me out of this, I'll serve you with my life. And I'm not saying that we should try to bargain with God, because I think that's sometimes what's going on in those moments. Um, and yet, what does Jacob do uh, when he sees the whole thing with the ladder going to heaven? What does he say to God? Okay, uh, the, the, that's, yeah, is that the part where he's wrestling with God? Okay, so earlier, before he goes to Laban and gets married and spends the 20 years and some, uh, he basically says to God, hey, if you take care of me and bring me back to this spot, I'll serve you. Now, is Jacob in that moment, right after he's tricked his brother and all of that, probably the prime example of what walking with God looks like? Not necessarily. But my point is to say, God can use moments of sincerity or like us trying to bargain to be a part of the process of genuine conversion. And the reason that I bring that up is there is this expression of vows that seem to be what vows did the sailors make? It says they made vows. What did that look like? I don't think that their thing was like a fully fledged theology of the God of Israel and, and on the basis of holy character and all of these sorts of things, I'm going to serve you with my whole life. It probably had a lot more parallel with what we would consider a foxhole conversion of, God, if you keep looking after me, I'm going to follow you. Now, I'm speculating here, and I'm acknowledging that. My point is to say, Jonah 
saying whatever he promises to God as he's drowning, he goes and does the sacrifice after God has the fish spit him out on the land. The sailors, whatever it is they offer to God in their imperfect understanding of who God is, but seemingly genuine faith, they follow through on it. So I think the Christian life, uh, the point I'm trying to make is this. Good theology is important, but commitment to God expressed in calling out to God and fulfilling promises made to God in connection with the way God works in our lives is just as important, if not more so, than being able to say things in exactly the right way and or all of those sorts of things. Again, I'm not saying saying things the right way and knowing truth is unimportant. I'm just saying you can have people, case in point would be scholars who translated the Bible, who know all of the right words and the nuances of grammar and all those sorts of things and didn't know God at all. Like there's clear evidence of people who translated the NASB, the NIV, all of those, probably even the King James, although I'm probably not allowed to say that, uh, who didn't know, I mean, let's be honest, who translated the King James? A bunch of Anglicans. What are Anglicans? They're Catholics who got a fight over the Pope because their king wanted to marry someone he wasn't supposed to. Uh, that's not like the great heritage, untainted by any sin, that we want to make it out to be, right? So if you have sinners, some of whom don't know God, but know enough about grammar and have enough common grace to accurately translate words, we shouldn't say, well, as long as I do really well at Bible trivia, as long as I have a seminary degree, as long as I've been to this many Bible studies, the test of our Christian life and our walk with God is a lot more about what we see with Jonah in Jonah 2, verse 9. It's not the, do you never have moments like chapter 1? It's not the, do you have imperfect faith like the sailors in chapter 1? It's the, do you call out to God, commit to God, fulfill your commitments to God. That, I think, is the test that we see in Jonah 1 and 2 of genuinely walking with God. All right, thoughts as we wrap up here the last few minutes. You're welcome to disagree with me, or we can discuss one of these points further, or... Yeah, or wake up. <laughs> Any thoughts about what's going on in Jonah 2? I just was really struck as I was reading through it about this seeming contrast of our typical idea of Jonah. Norma. Okay. God spares Jonah's life because he wants to accomplish his purposes. Bob?
along the way multiple times yeah and it's you know this shows jeremiah 79 you know our hearts are deceitful and wicked and paul picks up on that in the book of romans right you guys had all these blessings and you still strayed from god right so we should be warned by that tina and then jonathan We ask God for help. Yeah, we really needed help. Sure. Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. So there's this, do we only call God when we need him? Okay. Because that's not lack of relationship, but I think we recognize it's kind of a superficial, selfish way to approach a relationship, right? Sandra? Oh, I'm sorry, Jonathan, but go ahead, Sandra, so you don't forget. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Um, I think there's something for children in here. Okay. I think that's true. Jonathan? Interesting thing that I was thinking of here towards the end as we were discussing is that I believe Jonah was a believer from the beginning to the end. I don't think he came to believe. Sure. I mean, he, he called a prophet. I mean, in the beginning, he's any case he was a believer, but then it looks like he turns away from the faith. Maybe he was apostate, but no, I think he was a believer all, all the way through. Sure. And I think it's it shows how a genuine believer can do something bad, something wrong, turn away from God, rebel against God, and God has to do something to <laughs> say, hey, look, you know, come back to me and do what I want you to do. Yeah, and I want us to get into that theme of how does Jonah's life fit into our idea of what sanctification looks like, uh, especially as we get into chapters 3 and 4, because... The flawed, uh, the flawed people that God uses in the course of these things, I think that's a, uh, it's both an encouragement and a challenge. We shouldn't hold them up as the norm for the Christian life, but it is also an encouragement that there can be a lot of ups and downs in the course of our Christian life. And that doesn't always mean you're just not a believer. It also means we shouldn't get stuck there either, because if we get stuck there, then we shouldn't be confident that we are. So, yeah, let's, let's talk more about that. I'm just going to throw out one other verse just for sake of reference. It's the other place Jonah is referred to that I know of offhand in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 14.25. It uh, talks about King um, Uzziah, and it says, He restored the border of Israel. From the entrance of Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of gath Hafer. So, that's another reference to Jonah, 2 Kings 14.25. Um, so, I had been trying to look that up the last few weeks and wanted to mention that to you. So, All right, we'll stop there for now and head into the morning service. Father, we thank you for this morning. Help us to consider the lessons of the life of Jonah but more importantly to consider whether we are calling on you
and committing to you and fulfilling our relationship with you. Amen.